They're harassing Latinos, Muslims. I am so saddened to hear that. And I say, stop it. And I'll say it right to the camera, stop it. Gloomy day from Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and blanket in the globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you have me, Angie Coiro. At the very least, we can mourn together. God, God, last week. I still kind of wonder if it's a dream. I, I don't know about you. I know that some people shook that sense of unreality about President-elect Trump in just a few days. But I still have these feelings wash over me that this isn't real, right? We're going to wake up and find out the country is not doomed. Okay, maybe it's not doomed. Maybe it's not doomed. In fact, at the end of today's show, give a listen to Alex Steffen. He's a planetary futurist. He's a very smart guy. He has a good track record of success behind him, so he knows whereof he speaks in terms of what is practical and what is not. And he has some measured, measured encouragement for us and some very cautious words about not giving up on climate change. Okay, that's Alex Steffen. He's coming with us later. We're also going to look into the Dworkin Report with Squat, with Scott, not Squat. We're also going to look into the Dworkin Report, and that is with Scott Dworkin of Keep America Great and the Democratic Coalition. Let's look at some of this news, huh? You heard the quote at the beginning, Donald Trump looking right into the camera, officiously and intelligently and vehemently, telling his followers to just stop it. Just stop being bad people. Just stop being racist. Just stop beating folks up. Stop telling women that if they don't take off their hijab, you will set it on fire. Stop telling another woman that if she doesn't take off her headscarf, you will hang her with it. That's what's out there. That is what's out there. And you know what Trump reminds me of? I have an older brother. Younger sister, older brother. You know that dynamic, right? And what he loved to do was stir up all kinds of stuff and be provocative and get us all wound up. And then mom or dad would walk in and he'd say, hey, you guys cut that out right now. We knew what he was. 
We knew what he was doing. And he puts on this officious voice. I'm not dissing him, by the way. I love my brother dearly. But it does bring that to mind. That whole, when you're called upon to behave, you say the right thing. But it's not who you are. And it's not an accurate reflection of what you were just doing. You know, we're not going to develop amnesia about what we have seen in the many months since Donald Trump set his eyes on the White House. I'm very disappointed, and I'm not going to name names. You all know who's done this in your particular part of the world. I'm disappointed in people of stature and intelligence who have said, let's give him a chance. Why would we give him a chance? Why would we stop activism? Why would we stop banging the drum right now while he gets even more of a foothold, while he gets even more acceptability by the media? by the people who don't fully understand what he has done and what he is prepared to do. We should all stand back. We should all sit down now so he can get even further ahead. I don't think so. We're starting to see some coverage in the media a little more cautiously accurate as to what's going on. One such, uh, one such article comes out of the Washington Post. President-elect Donald Trump faces a growing backlash against his decision to name campaign chairman and former Breitbart News head Stephen Bannon as chief strategist at the White House, a choice critics say will empower white nationalists. Critics say will empower white nationalists. Now, to be fair... The Washington Post went into a little bit what Breitbart is known for, the stances they have taken, the alt-right connection. I think we need to discard alt-right, but that's a different conversation for a different day. So they're edging a little closer, not just WaPost, but other media outlets are starting to understand that their careful equivocation, their careful equivalencies in the name of journalism have given us a scary fascist man in the White House. Inches, inches, we will accept inches. But in the meantime, what's still happening out there? Here in California, in the very peaceful, sweet, normal, all-American town of Petaluma, which is in the egg belt of Northern California, two guys showed up with Confederate flags at the Veterans Day Parade. You want worse? A Michigan police officer was driving a pickup truck toting a Confederate flag during a political rally. It's one thing to have Joe Schmo idiot boys standing at the side of a parade holding a flag. But again, from the Washington Post, Officer Michael Peters, an 18-year veteran cop off-duty, was flying the Confederate flag on Veterans Day during a Love Trump's Hate rally in Traverse City. And the one that really ground my teeth, this happened in Texas. Yeah, hold your comments on that. This happened in Texas at Cedar Hill. A man with his service dog was at Cedar Hill Chili's, and he was taking advantage of the free meal offered to veterans. Caveat. I haven't seen proof that Ernest Walker is, in fact, an Army veteran. But because of the event I'm about to describe, he's hired himself a lawyer. 
And Chili's is already all over itself. Oh, yes, we're escalating this to the highest levels. Ernest Walker was wearing fatigues. He did not wear his dog tags. He did not wear his name on his fatigues. He had a very good reason for that. He said, this is what I'm able to wear. Excuse me, okay? I purposely don't wear rank or a name tag so as not to be identified as an active soldier. This is a man who not only wore the uniform and earned our reverence, but he was actively honoring the people still in uniform. So what happened? Guy in a Trump shirt, white veteran, allegedly, goes to the manager of Chili's and says, hey, that guy says he served in Germany. There are no, there are no blacks in Germany. Okay, beg to differ. Yes, there were black servicemen in Germany. But he claimed this man was impersonating a veteran. And you can look up the media, or you can look up the video online if you want, as to what subsequently happened with the manager who took this guy's side, took the white Trump supporter side, Trump t-shirt, Trump t-shirt, and said, you know, I'm taking your meal away. There was the carryout box. And lest this guy enjoy his leftover meal, the manager took it away. Chili's expresses regret, at least at the, as I'm recording this, last I heard, they've apologized in public. They've apologized on their Facebook. They haven't bothered to apologize to the veteran, who, by the way, was also challenged about not having a legitimate service dog. He had all the documentation with him. This is a legit service dog. You know what? Some veterans were traumatized enough. They need service dogs. But no, he was illegitimate. And the service dog was illegitimate. And he had his food taken away. I would like to hear that Chili's at some point will get around to apologizing personally to him. Wouldn't that be lovely? This one out of Mountain View, California. I'm just a couple miles north of Mountain View. This is, this is in my neck of the country. Imagine how displeased I am with this. Regardless of where you are, I hope you're displeased by it too because a scholar of the Holocaust in Mountain View, California has been removed from the classroom because he compared the rise of Donald Trump to the rise of Adolf Hitler. In an effort to show his students that the 2016 election is a reflection of the past. Let's go to the San Francisco Chronicle on this one. Frank Navarro, a Holocaust scholar who has taught at Mountain View High School for 40 years, said the principal and superintendent asked him to leave on Thursday after a parent complained about the parallels he was drawing in his world studies class. Navarro told the Chronicle this parent said I had said Donald Trump was Hitler, but I would never say that. That's sloppy historical thinking. What he was comparing was their rise to power, and he was talking to high schoolers. You know, these are not five-year-olds. These are high schoolers who are being taught to think right now. He pointed out that both of them promised to get foreigners out, promised to make their countries great again. And as he pointed out, this is factual, evidence-based common sense. He said it reminds students that history is real, and history is real. Because you know what? He was silenced. Dangerous thought, apparently. 
One of the authorities said regardless of their political affiliation, many of our students show signs of emotional stress. He has an obligation to maintain an emotionally safe environment for students while protecting teachers and staff against unsubstantiated allegations. The man is a Holocaust scholar. This is his life's work, that and teaching. Unsubstantiated allegations? How much have you studied, Mr. Grissom, about the Holocaust? How qualified are you to say that what he was saying was inaccurate? Kids are looking right now for a way to understand what the hell is happening to our country. He was showing them an historical template for what has happened so far and what we might anticipate in the future. And he was not talking to idiots. He was talking to kids of high school age. Let me add one more thought here before we move on to something else. I don't like to use Brad's show to push my own, but in this particular case, I'd like you to go to indeepradio.com, go to our archives, and look for the Trump-Hitler comparison. I'm going to ask you to do that because I doubt I can get the principal or the superintendent in Mountain View to do the same, but go listen to that. Because for my own show, I brought in two eminently qualified historians, both of whom had emphasis on the history of Germany and the history of war, and with no particular agenda, with no desire to prove that Trump was the equivalent of Hitler. People in our audience had all kinds of of opinions about that. It, It ran the gamut. So I wasn't looking to show them, hey, look, Trump is Hitler. We were all getting together to examine on an intellectual and historical basis whether there was anything legitimate about the comparison. And both of these historians found it valid. And I'm not talking about they said that we moved on to talk about the weather. I'm talking about probing it for an hour. I'm talking about checking the pulse of the German people during the Weimar Republic taking a look at the rise of Hitler within his own party, where he was initially laughed at, taking a look at the way the citizens, like frogs in a pot, gradually began accepting more and more of what they would have found reprehensible at the onset. The scholar in Mountain View who made that comparison has the backing of at least some, and I would wager most of his esteemed colleagues. And that is not too much for kids to take in, because you know what? Hitler was a dreadful, dreadful scourge upon the world, and he got beaten. Awful things happened in the interim, ungodly, horrible, unspeakable things. So you're not feeding the kids pablum if you tell them, look ahead, things will get better. You acknowledge how horrible it is. But now he can't acknowledge that or anything else. Because his ability to teach those kids about legitimate parallels in history has been pulled out from underneath him on the basis, it certainly sounds, of one parental complaint. Now, there is a little bit of a way that you can participate in the writing of this wrong if you care to. There is a petition on change.org to give him his job back. There's so much more that needs to be done about this than just putting him back in the classroom. There is some very critical self-reflection that has to take place on the part of the parents and the part of the school authorities as to what they have just done. And it's 
parallels in history. Not too much to ask, huh? (sighs) What a crappy week. What a crappy week. And to finish it off where I started, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which gathers facts about hate groups and hateful people and hateful acts, so of course they're left-wing. They're just gathering facts and reporting them, but they're left-wing. They say reports of hateful intimidation and harassment have erupted across social media networks and 201 incidents at the time of reporting of election-related harassment and intimidation across the country. That's as of Friday. That doesn't even count the stuff that happened over the weekend. Most of it anti-black. Second in the running, anti-immigrant. Anti-Muslim, anti-Asian, anti-disability, anti-woman. KKK recruitment. Showing the swastika. Of course, only the left wing cares about this, huh? They're the only ones who care. Perhaps you will care that the FBI has apparently, apparently, given up on checking out the connections between Russia and our dear leader. Our dear leader-to-be, President-elect Trump. You're going to hear about that with Scott Dworkin here next on the broadcast. I'm Angie Coiro. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Quero in for Brad and Desi today, trying to simultaneously provide you real news and real hope, which unfortunately is a bit of a contradiction in terms. Sorry about that. So about those Clinton emails. See, too many news stories before the election started just like that. You may or may not be a Clinton fan, but it's hard to argue that the false equivalence between her threat to the country and Donald Trump's threat to the country did all of us a huge disservice. Now, granted, some media are trying to make up for that now. Too little, too late. And, you know, regardless how you feel about the Democratic Party, and and I have very mixed emotions there, some of them are doing the work the government and the media should be doing into Donald Trump. And the latest case in point comes out from Scott Dworkin at the Democratic Coalition. It's a new, updated version of the Dworkin Report. That's all evidence tying Donald Trump to Russia. Actual evidence. Uh, Scott Dworkin, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, how are you doing today, Angie? I'm good, thank you. Let's talk about the FBI's look into Russian connections to the Donald Trump campaign and to Donald Trump himself. The latest Mm -hmm. I've seen is that officially those inquiries are still open. And as we've already remembered from the Clinton emails, officially FBI investigations don't ever officially close. Are they actively Mm -hmm. still researching this? 
You know, I, I, they can't comment on that. But what I can say is that they claim that there were no ties mm-hmm. between Trump and Russia. And, and that was our biggest issue that we had here. Um, you know, so so w- the plan was we had presented all this information for the most part six months ago um, and, you know, sooner than that. Um, to mainstream media, you know, we have a press list like anybody else, but thousands of, you know, pressers and, and whatnot. Um, so there's no real excuses as to why it didn't come out. It just wasn't covered as extensively. So it would be in small pockets. So what we put together here, um, you know, I, I, I know that just in my past history, um, working with Congress in the White House, that, uh, you know, people respond to reports. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so we went ahead and compiled one to make sure that, uh, at least for now, what we have is all in one place so that no one can claim otherwise that it didn't come out, um, or it wasn't covered or anything like that. Um, so we're, we're using, you know, the network that we have within the party, um, and within party leaders and electeds to make sure that they have something now to wave around, um, and say, here's the proof. Like this is indisputable. It's all public records. It's all there in front of us, you know? Tell me the best possible use for this report. What's the best thing that can happen with this information being out in the public? You know, I I think that public perception on Russia in general um, is skewed. Um, And and what we found is uh, a lot of times they're just they're just not intimidating to us Mm -hmm. um, in regards to the American public thought process um, when they should be more scared of them than any other country in the world. And, and that's the bottom line here. Um, it needs to be there's two things that need to happen. One is the perception on the reality of Russia and our relationship and what Putin actually has done over there mm-hmm. um, needs to be exposed completely. Uh, and so that's one of the things that the mainstream media obviously needs to get on. Uh, the second thing is there um, there needs to be an investigation immediately before he takes, uh, you know, it, it gets sworn in. This is. Not along the lines of, I wouldn't say treason or anything like that. Obviously, a lot of people on the Internet would say that. But um, I wouldn't say it's along the lines of treason, but it makes him unfit for president. It makes him absolutely unfit for president. It's it's not just a conflict. He's been working in Russia and making millions from Russia for decades. And that's no, no, there's no doubt about it either. You know, that's what that's what I think gets me the most is that his business connections there, as you said earlier, these are not secret. These are you didn't have to dig to find these. And I guess it strikes me as one of the most egregious faults of the media coverage before the election was that this wasn't probed in better depth and the dots connected between what this could mean during an election versus what it could mean when he actually is in the White House. And that just was a huge Mm -hmm. dropped ball. Let's talk about it, the contents. It, it oh, really, please, it, go ahead. It, yeah. It, no, no, no. It really, it really has. You know wh- why I started the Democratic Coalition in the first place with with the other partners um, is we got sick of just hearing all this negative talk and nobody would take immediate action. And I'm not talking about rapid response. I'm talking about immediate response. Um, for example, there was a guy, Michael Folk, in West Virginia, state delegate, um, Republican who said that uh, Hillary should be hung on the Washington Mall. Hmm. And we did not appreciate that. He also, since he's an elected <laughs> official in the state, uh, he also is a, U- a U.S. Air pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he has to represent their company. Um, we, within an hour, 
um, through our networks and whatnot, made sure that he was suspended from not just Twitter, but he was suspended from his job. Um, and then they also are censoring him in the house. But mm. the, the bottom line is when that happened, he went away and his negativity and all this uh, terrible stuff. If we call them out every single time on what they're doing, we just need to be able to scream loud enough for everybody else to hear us. And so when we've had different issues that have come out, especially along the lines of the threats, every single FBI complaint, DOJ complaint uh, across the board, I'd say 99% of them were filed by us. All the legal challenges against Trump filed by us. Um, you know, there's a couple that have been out there, uh, like Crew, great organization. They, they've uh, filed some FEC complaints. Um, but, you know, overall, immediately, you know, when they come up with different ways to try and skew the law for them, there really is no gray area in politics. And I'd be surprised if there aren't other organizations within the government that are also pursuing investigations into him, um, not just it's just on trade or, you know, his business tactics, but his, his ethics while campaigning. Um, and, and what he's done so far, because he's, he's bent the law beyond even any sense of reason. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what we've seen. I've never seen anything like this before. I've seen people go to jail for one of the things he's done, and he's done 50 of them. Um, and that's, it's very disconcerting because if people become complacent and that's the norm, then if a person has one violation, they can win an election based off that violation if it's not enforced. And then there's no deterrent in the future. Because they're like, oh, that guy only got that. Right, so right. You establish, an, you establish a new bar is what you do. The, you just lower right. the bar. Yeah, right. Yeah. Scott Dworkin, Democratic yeah. Coalition. You can find the report we're talking about, the Dworkin Report, at keepamericagreat.us. Uh, Scott, let's get into some of the nitty-gritty here. And your reports stretch all the way back to 1987 when he traveled to Russia, which in and of itself would not be problematic. People travel to Russia. So... At that point, you go into the fact that he was planning to build a hotel in Moscow, and he openly talked about this in 87. And then Mikhail Gorbachev asked Trump to build that hotel. Why is that problematic, or is it only problematic in combination with everything else in the report? You know, I think that the key here is uh, he has claimed to never have business relationships in Russia. Oh, He's oops. claimed to never even <laughs> Tempted, yeah, and so that's that's the thing here. That's that's the biggest part of it is he said that he's never made a dime from there. He's never uh, done any transactions with Russia. He's looked into it, and and you know the whole thing is a complete lie because when uh, the the Russian government paid for Miss Universe to be there, guess who got the licensing fee? I mean, so that's millions of dollars right there that he got paid by the Russian government just for Miss Universe. And it's right out in front of us. Trump vodka, same thing. Uh, you know, he actually had at this Millionaires Business Expo, he had Trump vodka, a showcase where he paid over 50 grand to have it showcased there. And he had like models and, you know, this huge, huge thing. And there's pictures on the Internet, obviously, and we have the proof. But but this is the, this is the problem that we've seen. Um, he, he just has the he, he doesn't he doesn't uh, he's just sat there and lied about it. And, and, and that's all the way just, through to 2008, it, it, because in 2008, you've got right. him selling his Florida mansion to a Russian billionaire, and mm -hmm. then you have him talking openly about doing business in Russia in 2008. Uh, when you looked into any of these, do any of these glance up, and I know you're not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, 
But do any of these glance up against law in terms of his investments in Russia and his connections to Russia? You know, I, I'm not sure in, mm-hmm. in regards to that. Uh, I know our legal team has concerns in regards to it. Um, I know that uh, some of the congressional staffers that we're working with have concerns in regards to that. Um, so I can't I can't speak on that because I we don't even have a briefing on it yet. Um, I would assume that the transactions are, you know, so large and have so many interiors that he did it, uh, you know, within the legal bounds mm-hmm. is my assumption. Um, but there's again, this is a person who said that he's never done business there. Um, and, and it's just untrue. You know, mm-hmm. he's categorically denied this ever doing business there ever, um, and ever knowing Putin. And then he lies about that as well. It's just, it's, it really drives people nuts, including myself, obviously, yeah. because it's, uh, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's such a big lie. It's just mm-hmm. such a big lie, and it's right in front of our faces. And, uh, you know, we've been trying to get out there. Um, the most important thing is to make sure that people know he literally is saying that he's never even, like, you know, interacted with it. And it's, again, a blatant lie. Um, that combined with the, the truth about Russia and what's really going on there and how Putin actually treats his people, I think that those two things, you know, will make people sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and then question, you know, where they go from here. You know, I think everybody in terms of Trump's campaign advisors and in terms of the Trump people that he's welcoming into the White House, most of the focus right now, especially coming from the left, is on on Bannon of Breitbart and how appalling mm-hmm. that welcoming invitation is. But you have in the report, you have some lesser known names, names and all of their connections to Trump. Do you want to highlight a few of those? Uh, yeah, I think one of the key ones that, that people were surprised about is Boris Epstein. Um, you know, he's a commentator uh, on, on a lot of the news channels and whatnot. Um, so I, I actually was surprised when I found a connection, not only a connection, he was Russian-born, which obviously isn't a problem, but he uh, he, he was an investment banker and literally was working on a panel to talk people into investing into Moscow. Mm. And so... <laughs> You know, his Russian ties are pretty tight Um, and he's represented, you know, Trump for over a year now. Um, And directly this guy, uh, we have a picture in here of a guy named uh, Sergei Chernin and he is our chairman and he is uh, directly related with Putin. He's an advisor to Putin um, and they're sitting next to each other in the panel. Um, just to explain to your listeners, um, another person is, is is I guess it's going to be his potential Secretary of State mm-hmm. um, or NSA director, but General Michael Flynn. Right. Um, he was he was paid by RT um, or Putin, you know, or the government or whatnot to come and speak at a luncheon that was hosted by Putin. Sat at Putin's table. Sat next to Putin at that table. Um, you know, and Jill Stein was there as well, same table, um, just as an FYI. But there, there was uh, Michael Flynn being there um, is so disconcerting because only two years ago he was talking about how concerned he was about Russia and how they're the biggest threat to America. And so you're, you've got guy contradicting himself within two years and money was involved. I'm going to encourage everybody to read the whole report, which obviously we can't go into, and you're going to find that online at the uh, Democratic Coalition 
And you'll find that at, I just lost the address. There it is at keepamericagreat.us. Scott, I'm sure people will accuse me of throwing you a softball, but just to acknowledge that this narrative is out there, what is so wrong with having connections to someone who is traditionally, a country that is traditionally problematic for the U.S., that might increase our chance of outreach, that might increase our chance of getting along better and might open each other to a little more cultural exchange? What's wrong with that? You know, working with them would then contradict a lot of the, I, I guess the best way to say it is it, Russia is not equal to America in any regard, in regards to the, the way they treat their people, in regards to how they pay their people. Um, it is not a fun place to be right now. Um, and I think a lot of people think that, oh, Russia seems a lot like America because they see it, the, the, the whole uh, the the bottom line is that we, it, it gets me so messed up sometimes when I when I, when I have to think about it. Um, it is a government that's ruled by one man, mm-hmm. and in America we're about to be ruled by one man. This is not the situation anyone wants to be in. This is what the founding fathers were against since the beginning, um, and they're both tyrants. And that's that's we don't want that. We want to make sure that. You know, it's for the best of the people overall, and we can't have just one person making that decision. Um, It's very obvious that based on his business experience that he is the boss. Mm -hmm. He is the decider, and it's not going to change here. Wow, that was a blast from the past. He's the decider. (laughs) I hadn't heard that one in a while. Uh, Let me let you go with one more question. so, So baffled. Mm-hmm. Let me let you go with this last question, and this is Grant Stern in the Huffington Post, and he reported this morning that President Obama and Vice President Joe Biden are reviewing this investigative report. How do we know that? Have they said anything? You know, I, I sent it over to their offices, mm-hmm. um, and I've, I've, I ran the draft Biden campaign, um, also the draft Warren campaign, and I was on 2012 uh convention and and also the body man for the president in 2009 um, for inauguration, which is a lot of fun. Um, So I have extensive experience with them. um, So I pass it along. Whether or not they're going to specifically review it, I have no clue. Um, And I don't even know if they'd ever admit that. So that'd be something the press would have to dig into. Scott Dworkin, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the report. Sure. And thank you. I'm going to get some sleep. Obviously, you know, still a little thrown off. Everybody keep your heads up. Keep fighting. Um, You know, we have a long road to go, but seriously, uh, come join us because we're really here for the cause. We've been here for six months um, and we'd love to keep on fighting. So come join us. God, so well put. Scott Dworkin is co-founder and senior advisor of the Democratic Coalition. More of the broadcast coming up after this. I'm Angie Cuero. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. (laughs) 
Hi, everybody. Juliana Forlano here from The Juliana Forlano Show on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. Do you like to know what's going on in the world but don't like walking away from your news show feeling all depressed or jacked up? Do you like political humor? Then check out our show, The Juliana Forlano Show, Saturday at 11 a.m., Sunday at 9 p.m. on the Progressive Voices Network or find us at julianaforlano.com. I'm afraid of Americans I'm afraid of the world I'm afraid I can't help it I'm afraid I can't I never thought I'm afraid of Americans would become my theme song. Uh, In the interest of generosity, you can make it yours too. I'm Angie Cuero on the mic today. This is the Bradcast. Like Brad and Desi, I'm in California, and you've probably heard there are some very big and impressive names seriously looking into seceding from the U.S. And frankly, I'm willing to look at that. And of course, the the later stories have said maybe the whole Pacific Northwest as well. Just wrap them all into one country, stick them together with British Columbia, and call ourselves a new country. I'm willing to look at that if the electoral revolt does not go well. But frankly, there are some very intelligent, uh, very accomplished Californians who are also saying, let's stay and make this work, and or it's not as hopeless as it seems. And one of those is a guest I'm pleased to have on with me before, and I'm glad he's back now, Alex Steffen. He's a writer and a futurist, and his latest project, will I, which I will ask him about, is The Heroic Future. Alex, it is so good to talk to you again. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to start out with your most recent post on Medium. One of the ideas that you have, that you've put out with great emphasis, is that Silicon Valley has so many conferences convening all the time. There are so many events. There are so many occasions where someone is up on stage to talk to a rapt audience. A lot of these are already planned out. Conferences are planned out, sometimes years in advance, and you're saying... Turn that around. I don't care what you are gathering people for. Now is the time to get democracy and your ideas to defend and all the ideas about how democracy works and how we can make it work. Use the stage for that. So can you go into that a little more? Yeah. The point that I'm trying to make is that democracy is, of course, predicated on freedoms. Uh, on intellectual freedoms, on freedom of conscience, on freedom of the press, on freedom to assemble. And we can't really run American democracy without the ability to look at what's going on and talk about it and share ideas about how to make it better. Mm -hmm. And as crazy as it is, we now have a president-elect who's made his disdain for all of those things really apparent. And we live in a time when basic ideas like freedom of the press, uh, academic freedom, uh, the right to assemble are being openly challenged by the incoming administration and its surrogates. But he's promised to behave now. (laughs) Trump has said, don't look at everything I've said, look at everything I'm going to say. Right, because it's well known that billionaires who are 70 years old frequently change their spots on demand. (laughs) Um, The, uh, you know, the the, the point that I'm trying to make is that if you're somebody who is, is running a conference or even just attending conferences or gathering people on any regular basis, that whatever the topic is that, that, that you hoped to, do, to address, it really is a subtopic of this larger question right now, right? Mm-hmm. That we can't really get 
uh, we can't really have a meaningful conversation about what ideas are interesting and how to think in new ways and so forth, unless we're taking on that fundamental challenge that the idea of free thought, of free speech is under attack and that we are gathering people, as you say, you know, every day there's a conference somewhere, often many. And it, I think it's really important to use the gatherings that we have already set in motion to have substantive discussions about where are we going as a country? What is it that we're willing to stand up for and defend? And how do we, uh, you know, sort of both reinvigorate the discussion about what democracy is and how it works, but also reimagine the future of American democracy so that we are making it better and stronger and not losing it? Let's talk about the reception this article has gotten. Um, and you published it, as you and I are talking, you published it about a day ago. And I've already seen some coverage of it and some commentary on it. What kind of feedback are you getting? Uh, I'm a little surprised, honestly, that I'm getting very positive feedback. I assumed that the response was going to be like, well, this is uh, nice but overly idealistic thinking, and there's no way that people who have a conference in the, in, in the works can actually change anything on this kind of notice. But I'm actually getting the opposite response. I'm getting uh, you know, a lot of people who are doing events, who are doing things, saying, you know, this is important and we need to think about how to address this challenge. Uh, we need to start to imagine having conferences be relevant to the immediacy they're surrounded in. And, and that, honestly, I find it incredibly encouraging. I mean, uh, I think that we're, we're in this moment where just thousands and thousands of people are waking up and realizing that whatever it was that we thought we were about to do on Monday got changed on Tuesday mm -hmm. and all of our lives are different now and we have different, you know, different challenges to respond to, but also different opportunities to embrace. And it's just really encouraging to see how quickly that idea is spreading among people who work with ideas for a living. I, I'm not going to ask you to agree or disagree with this because it's my personal opinion. I see you as on a spectrum where you are on the one end of the spectrum with some optimism and some ideas and some belief that our American way of life is in danger. And on the far end of the spectrum, you know, Peter Thiel appears to be walking into the White House. And I'm wondering if you have a sense within not just Silicon Valley, but outside the whole tech world. Do you have a sense of how much willingness there is to sit down and be quiet or to embrace the new administration? Or, you know, where do people tend to fall on that spectrum? Oh, I think it's a disturbing division um, from what I can tell. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who are not uh, particularly deep thinkers about politics and who maybe are not really concerned with the well-being of others. Uh, I think there's no way in denying, there's no point in denying that that is a real element in technology right now. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, I see a lot of people, you know, being woken up right at the moment. Um, I see people who are friends of mine who I've never, uh, I've never seen them take an overtly political stance about anything, um, who are suddenly saying, we've got to do something about this. We've got to stop, you know, stop these people. I think in particular, uh, Steve O'Bannon, or excuse me, Steve Bannon, there's no O in his name, uh, yeah. has, uh, has really alarmed a large group of people because they get what Breitbart is. Yes, right? they I'm get so the web. glad. They understand what that is. They yeah. understand that it's a, it's a hate site. 
And I think that, you know, there's, there's plenty of apathy and plenty of lack of insight into how politics is and how it works and, and tons of, of just deeply entrenched privilege in the technology world. But fundamentally, I think most people who work in technology are, are good people and are not down with hate <laughs> and are not down with tyranny. And I think uh, progressives who are wondering what's going to happen in the coming years would do well to seek those people out and to make, you know, technologists their allies. I'm talking to planetary futurist Alex Steffen. Let's talk about your article about how it isn't the time to give up on climate change. And boy, this is one of the things that I just saw people's jaws dropping for any number of reasons when Trump won on uh, Tuesday night. But most of it, or I should say a great percentage of it, had to do with the fact that we're pretty much kissing the earth goodbye. And you're saying it's not game over. No. In fact, I don't think game over is a thing that, you know, people of goodwill get to say about the climate. Mm -hmm. Because, first of all, I just want to say it, it looks like, and I don't want to downplay this, it looks like we are about to have the most anti-environmental administration entering the White House that we've had at least since Reagan, mm -hmm. right? This is, it, it is 100% bad news for the environment. But that said, first of all, I think we don't have the right to give up because, uh, yes, it's, it's very likely that it's going to be extremely hard to keep climate change under two degrees Celsius, uh, given uh, a, a U.S. administration that's hot, hostile to climate action. Right. But the thing is that these aren't magic thresholds. These are goals, right? Mm -hmm. And with every increment of warming, things get worse for us and for our kids and for the people to come. So there's no point at which we're not going to want to not take that next step, right? There's no point at which we're going to want to say, well, you know, it's just so warm now that there's no point in doing anything. Right. If mm -hmm. we hit, you know, two degrees, we still want to fight to keep from going past two point one. If we hit three degrees, we still want to fight to keep going past three point one. So there's really just no point at which giving up is the ethical thing to do. Uh, I also think that there are a number of reasons to be somewhat optimistic about what's going on. Um, we need to act much more boldly. We are in a deep planetary crisis and we need to reinvent everything. That said, there are a lot of people trying to reinvent everything right now, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, there are all sorts of trends from, from clean tech and clean energy and the, the ways in which the technologies and the business models there are moving way faster than anyone even hoped for to the uh, power of cities to mm -hmm. change the carbon footprint of the people who live within their boundaries through, uh, you know, good development and, uh, you know, uh, clean energy investments and, and transit and walkability and bikes, you know, all the way over to just the simple fact that we're living in a carbon bubble, right? That mm -hmm. the valuation of these huge companies that want to keep burning coal and oil are based on the idea that they can sell the coal and oil that they're that they that they own in these reserves that they'll right. be able to dig it up, pump it out, and burn it. Mm. And it's really clear that that is incompatible with basic planetary goals, to which actually most of the nations on the earth have agreed now, right? Right. And that 
even people like the governor of the Bank of England are saying that we are in a financial bubble on those assets, right? And that's, that, that's pretty big. It's pretty big. It's pretty big. And it's really clear that in the next 5, 10, 15, hard to know, but not in the distant future, um, those companies' values are going to crash, mm. which means their power to stop things is going to crash. And that part of what we need to do, I think, right now, is to really emphasize all of the places that we can act and that we can push things forward more. Mm-hmm. And here in California, we're in a really excellent position to do that, right? We have lots of ability here in California to uh, push you know, for more clean energy, more smart growth, more transit, better development, um, and so forth. Uh, that we want to push those things forward now so that when the Trump administration comes to its end, right, when the carbon bubble pops, when when we gain the ability to move faster here in the U.S., mm-hmm. we're able to. So get and it ready. Basically, get it ready. Yes. Yeah, start the momentum now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's also worth remembering that while things are really bad here right now, they're not bad everywhere. And... There are many people around the world, millions of people around the world, who are still working just as hard as they were yesterday, the day before, or Monday of last week yes. to, to see that we get global agreements, to see that we push forward clean energy, to see that we do better urban development, to see that we protect you know, large-scale ecosystems, to you know, fight to save the oceans, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that didn't go away. And in fact, if anything, I think the signs are pretty clear that the rest of the world is feeling more committed, not less, because of Trump's election. So I think there are real reasons for optimism. I, I, I don't we, we can't pretend everything's great, but it's definitely not game over. I like that. I, I like the fact that it's neither nor I re- I, because, frankly, I've been feeling that my, my first thought was it's all bad. Not I'm leaving the country because I I can't leave the country, but the whole idea of being New California really appealed to me. Uh, let's talk about your item that actually appeared in Medium. You posted this on Medium back in 2008, or you first published it in 2008, and it's up on Medium and starting to get some attention again. You're talking to Corey Doctorow, and you said, we got on this riff about heroes who got the paradox of the moment that abandoned people and places are sometimes the ones who need the most radical information, and that these days, new tools and models are practically scattered all over the ground, waiting for people to pick them up. But those who most need them are those who least know how to find them. And I understand you wrote this years ago, but if anything captures that divide between us of those who are enabled and who have privilege and who have access to technology versus the people who have almost none of the above. That, God, it's so relevant now. Yeah. Uh, well, I have to say that I have really mixed feelings about how popular that article is, is getting all of a sudden. Um, it doesn't strike me as a good sign for our democracy that most, or that, you know, that, that, that a great many people are suddenly interested in, in how do we do these workarounds for societal collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have that ambivalent feelings, but that said, I, I am encouraged by the, I think, increased awareness, um, that I'm seeing that one of the aspects of poverty and disempowerment is lack of access to tools, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's, there are the really obvious parts of it as well, right? Lack of access to resources and and direct oppression. But part of it is also just not knowing how to improve your own situation. Mm -hmm. 
right? And that so much of the of the really interesting, uh, great work that was done in the 20th century to raise people out of poverty was about providing people access to the tools they need, providing access to information, and helping people see that they can do things better. Well, right now we have a lot of people who are being, you know, systematically abandoned by our economy. And if we want those people to have a chance to thrive, one of the things that might be a really good idea is seeing how to get better and more information into the hands of people who need it. And it's, that, instead of resenting about, them, instead of resenting them and characterizing them as dodos, I mean, it's it's constructive. Yeah, well, certainly that's not a good idea. But I think even even more damning in a way is sort of this sense that we have, uh, you know, this, there's sort of this uh, modern kind of take on the poor you'll always have with you kind of idea, mm-hmm. where uh, where people sort of go, well, these people are just structurally displaced, right? Right, as if that is a a, a permanent judgment on their capacities and, and, and prospects. Um, you know, that there's this way in which people sort of, sort of acknowledge both the deep structural problems these folks are up against who are, you know, who are, uh, you know, our, our, our poorer neighbors and compatriots, but also sort of at the same time discount or dismiss the idea that anything can be done about it. And I really do believe that lots can be done about it. And, you know, this piece, the acquisition was really just a, it was, you know, uh, myself and Cory Doctorow, a science fiction writer, um, just having a conversation uh, about what is it that you could do, Mm -hmm. right? What is it smart people could do to be helpful, right? Not to design for, not to impose solutions on, but to like kind of go in and be helpful in communities that that are in trouble. And unfortunately, I suspect that, that that work is something that we're going to need more of in coming years. You know, I've really run us up against the clock, Alex, but I want to ask you about the heroic future. What is that? The heroic future is a futurism project that I'm working on here with, uh, with a bunch of folks. And it is an attempt to uh, get at the problem that we can't build what we can't understand. Uh, mm-hmm. And we can't understand what we can't imagine. So if we're really serious about building a world that's sustainable and prosperous and dynamic, we need to start imagining a world that's very different than the one that we have, which is none of those things. Mm -hmm. And so it's an effort to enlist the imagination in order to, uh, you know, uh, in order to envision and portray and work towards the world we need. And that's online where? That is. You Google the heroic future will be the first result. And we're about to release a video and we have a project coming up called the nearly now and you can find out about all this stuff and more by uh going to alexstephan.com that's a-l-e-x-s-t-e-f-s-e-n.com or following me on twitter at alex Stephan. alex thanks so much it's a pleasure to talk to you again it's a real pleasure thank you very much Take all right care. thank you and before we end the broadcast i'd like to dedicate the hour to gwen eiffel we have such a po- such a paucity of people of color in the news, of people of good mind who really try to parse a story, and we've lost her to cancer. Uh, Gwen Eiffel is a real loss in so many ways, and I just wanted to note that passing here. You've been listening to the broadcast. I'm Angie Cairo. Brad and Desi will be back before you know it. In the meantime, good luck, world.
Hi, it's Bill Press, host of The Bill Press Show, where I talk politics and news of the day for three hours a day, five days a week. And now you can hear my show and all your favorite shows on one of the biggest platforms on the mobile Internet, the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn, where you can listen at home, at the gym, in the car, anywhere you can take your mobile app. We'll be there. That's The Bill Press Show on the Progressive Voices Channel 